Well, there you all are. It's a joy, isn't it, to worship worship God? We come uh, to another Easter, a Resurrection Sunday, and from year to year, this day rolls around. From day to day, each and every day is the Christian's Resurrection Day. And yet year to year we celebrate and this year has not been an easy year. And so I love the fact that we're here as a church family and it's great to see you all. Well, as the Easter's roll around, I wonder what we should look at each year. And I want to turn our attention to a passage this morning that I've not studied until this week, last week. But before we get to 1 Corinthians 15, I'd love for you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. If you look at verse 16 of Acts chapter 17, now Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is and what you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Paul then stands amongst them and tells them about their sign that they have there to the unknown God. Paul tells them that he is the maker of heaven and earth. Look at verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysus and and a woman named Damaris and others with them. But look at verse 1 of chapter 18, the next verse. 
After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. Corinth is just a quick trip down the road. I'd love to do it one day. It's 83 kilometers, about an hour in a vehicle. I imagine it would have been some walk, but it's not too far. In fact, when you look at the map of Greece, which I did, it's in very close proximity. And so keep that in mind as you turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This morning it's quite fitting to consider the resurrection, obviously. The resurrection is a vital component of our faith as Christians. In fact, without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. And when Paul arrives at Corinth, he discovers many things about the church there. They were immature. They were bickering amongst themselves. They were not looking outside of themselves. They were generally behaving quite poorly. They had allowed error to creep in. And one of the ways error had come into the church is by allowing the Athenian, the thought from Athens, come inside the church. You know, we used to say, not sure if we can say it anymore, but we used to say, the United States of America sneezes and we catch a cold. I think sometimes we sneeze and they get our cold now. We're a little ahead of them. <clears throat> but in many ways here, Athens sneezed and Corinth caught the cold. Look at verse 12 with me of 1 Corinthians 15. Now if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how does some among you... That's the church of Corinth. You say that there is no resurrection of the dead. We don't have time to go into it, but the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and the many other uh, religious pagan idol groups that were in Athens denied the resurrection. They believed that any physical matter was all evil and that after death, they believed in an afterlife though, but all uh, anything physical was considered uh, evil. They were all about spiritual, I think the word's esoteric, That was something that had crept in. Athenian pagan thought had crept in. It had become however prevalent. We don't know if everyone was believing it, but there was certainly some enough for Paul to mention vain philosophies from the world coming inside the church. They created confusion and chaos. That's always the result. And so when we look at 1 Corinthians 15, we need to know the context as to why Paul is writing what he is and what Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 15 is truly wonderful. It's Paul bringing a word of correction, a word of encouragement to a church that is experiencing division. It's displaying immaturity. And he does so by bringing a very needed, strong reminder of what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian. And what a joy it is to... Believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is what is necessary to be a Christian. And so if you're here this morning and you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to celebrate because you've been given grace to believe those things. 
without any without the component of the resurrection not only can one not be a christian without the resurrection as i said there is no christianity and so this morning from 1 corinthians 15 we will see four testimonies of the resurrection four testimonies of the resurrection i want you to see first if you're taking notes the first testimony to the resurrection or of the resurrection is according to the church according to the church in verses 1 through 3 now that may sound like an interesting way to begin before we dive into that i want to add just one more thing here about the context in all of paul's new testament epistles he most always writes first about doctrine who we are the gospel and its applications in our lives that we're new in christ when we believe the gospel when we receive by grace through faith the gospel and then paul most always in all of his epistles all of his pastoral letters he mentions that at the beginning he grounds all of life in that reality and then he writes about the duties we must fulfill there's the doctrine first and then there's the duty but i want you to know that first corinthians is very different the first corinthians is very different it's not until you get to the 15th chapter here that we're in in first corinthians that paul gets to the doctrine prior to that he spends 14 chapters addressing their immaturity addressing the dissension and he gives the solution to all of that in chapter 15 the the solution to all of that is the gospel the resurrection all those things and he begins by giving testimony to the fact that this is according to or from the church look at the first three verses with me now i make known to you brethren the gospel which i preached to you which also you received in which also you stand by which also you are saved if you hold fast the words which i preached to you unless you believed in vain for i delivered to you as of first importance what i also received that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures you notice there that paul says in verse 1 he made it known to them he says in verse 1 again that he preached it to them in verse 3 he says i delivered it to them all words that convey the dispensing of doctrine the church dispenses sound doctrine listen to paul in galatians chapter 1 verse 11 he writes for i would have you know brethren that the gospel which was preached by me the doctrine that he dispensed he says is not according to man for i neither received it from man nor was i taught it but i received it through a revelation of jesus christ Paul was taught divine truth about the gospel about the power and necessity of the resurrection by direct revelation of Jesus Christ that's Paul Paul was a little different to the other apostles the other apostles also did as well listen to acts chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 let me read it for you to these Jesus also presented himself alive after his suffering after his resurrection by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days 
and speaking of the things to them concerning the kingdom of God. The resurrected Christ taught the apostles doctrine. And so Paul and the apostles received direct revelation from the risen and glorified Christ. They then dispensed that doctrine. And that doctrine becomes the doctrine of the church. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so from the apostles throughout all the ages down until now, the church dispenses truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the resurrection. And we do so just as they did. And that is in order to be Saved, you must believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 says that the church of the living God is a pillar and buttress or support of the truth. We promulgate truth. The pastors, the elders, the entire congregation as one congregation who make up the church we uphold the glories of Christ's resurrection. I mean, Christ's resurrection is what moves us and motivates us and compels us to go on when times are tough. We give testimony to the resurrection. And so because it's been made known to us, because it has been preached to us, because it has been delivered to us, In many ways, the testimony of the resurrection comes first from the church. Before we move on, I want you to see that it's no light matter. I want you to see that we do so as a matter of eternal life and death. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Paul says the gospel which he preached, you have received, in which you stand, by which you are saved. You receive it, you stand upon it, you're saved by it. And so the death and resurrection of Christ is non-negotiable to be saved from the wrath of God. That's what we do as a church. That's what we do. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so the first testimony of the resurrection is according to the church. The second testimony to the resurrection is number two, according to the scriptures. According to the church first, according to the scriptures in verses Three and four. There's a number of theologians who track this similar path. I was able to draw from some of them. Dr. MacArthur in his message many years ago, in his commentary as well. The second testimony is according to the scriptures. We look specifically at what Paul meant by according to the scriptures, that phrase in regards to Christ's crucifixion on Friday. Some of you are here for that. We saw there that he is not talking about the New Testament scriptures. 
when he says according to the scriptures because none were really in circulation or even completed. I think I made mention on Friday, it was just Matthew, James and Galatians that were written by the time 1 Corinthians was written in AD 52 and they weren't in circulation long at all. And so Paul's talking about the sacred writings, the sacred writings, what we know as the Old Testament. We looked at places like Daniel 9, for example, Daniel 9 verse 25, I believe it is, for example, speaks of the Messiah being cut off. The Hebrew word there means to be severed. It's used of criminals that are, that are punished, put to death. Zechariah chapter 12 talks of Israel in a coming day looking at the one whom they have pierced. By the way, if you go and read Zechariah chapter 12, you'll see when he says they will look at me whom they have pierced, and it's Yahweh speaking. Jesus is Yahweh. Isaiah 53, of course, talks about him who was pierced for our sins. Isaiah 53 represents in the most beautiful way the suffering servant of Yahweh making a substitutionary atonement for his people. What about the resurrection though? Because Paul says that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. What about that? Paul will go on to explain in... The rest of this chapter, which we'll see in a moment, that resurrection is also a reality for the saints. We rise to. Resurrection is true for Christ and resurrection is true for us. Well, in Job, chapter 14, verse 14, Job asks the question, if a man dies, will he live again? It's a good question. A few chapters later, Job 19, verse 26, Job's got greater clarity now in his mind. He says there, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. In Psalm 17, verse 15, David says, as for me, I love this, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. When I awake beautiful. David knew that he would rise again. This is according to the scriptures, sacred writings. In Psalm 16, David writes, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your holy one to undergo decay. Don't miss this. David is confident of his own resurrection. He's confident of his own resurrection because he understands that God will not allow his Holy One to undergo decay in the grave. Therefore, the resurrection of Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, becomes the very basis for David's resurrection. That's the same for you and I. What a beautiful thing to know that we won't lie forever in the ground. That we will rise again literally, bodily, Resurrection. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, verse 25 to 28, passionately preached the following words. For David says of Jesus, I saw the Lord continually before me because he's at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue was overjoyed. Moreover, my flesh also will live in 
hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter continues on. He says, Brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. So because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah. That he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. And then Peter says this, It is this Jesus whom God raised up, a fact to which we are all witnesses. Hosea chapter 6 verse 2 says, He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. This is all in the sacred writings, the Old Testament. Hosea 13 verse 4 says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? And then Isaiah 25 verse 8 says, He will swallow up death for all time. Note that. All time. And Yahweh God will wipe away tears from all faces. And so resurrection is for all time. It's forever. And it's beautiful. One of the reasons it's beautiful is because God will wipe away every tear. Every tear. Life gives us many an opportunity to have tears. And so the sacred writings, the Old Testament speaks of the death and resurrection of Christ and the saints. And what about the burial? Well, the burial ensures we know Jesus really did die. He was not taken away to recover somewhere. No, he died and he was with a rich man in his death. He was wrapped in cloth and spices. He was dead. He was awaiting a victorious and glorious resurrection. So that's the first two testimonies. The church and the scriptures. Third testimony of the resurrection is according to the eyewitnesses. Look at verses 5 through 8 now. After saying that he was buried and he rose again according to the scriptures, Paul says, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then, if that wasn't enough, then he appeared to James. And if that's not enough, then he appeared to all the apostles, all of them. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. I want to make note of something just very quickly in verse 5. That he appeared to Cephas. He appeared to Peter. I mean, this is an act of loving kindness by God in the person of Christ. Why? Peter denied him three times. So he appears to him first our Jesus is a very very kind 
shepherd. Then to the twelve. Then more than 500. Then he appeared to James. Why James? Why does it mention James? James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James was the one who called and commissioned the council in Acts chapter 15 about the gospel. Important man. Then to all of the apostles. Then Paul says, and last of all, as to one untimely born. One untimely born. That's a remarkable statement. Talking about an untimely birth. Some argue that it talks like an abortion. Paul says he's the least of the apostles. He's not fit to be called an apostle. Why? Because he persecuted the church of God. This is a very humble man telling a story about what he has seen with his own eyes. This is not some grandioso, arrogant, prideful individual seeking to garner followers by making up deceptive lies about something that's not true. This is coming from a very humble man. He's telling the truth. Eyewitnesses. You know, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ are irrefutable historical events. Read Josephus, and you can learn more about that. The eyewitness account of the apostles moved and motivated them to suffer. And to author what they wrote. And when you read their writings, you can see that the impact of the resurrection, the resurrected Christ before them. You think of the Apostle John, he wrote, What we could see, touch, we've seen him, it validates, confirms. Well, there's more we could say on that, but let's move on to the fourth testimony of. The resurrection, and that is in verses 9 through 11, and that is according to the transformed lives. According to the transformed lives. This is another way, the resurrection. This is a very powerful way the resurrection is testified. Look what Paul says. For I'm the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Now, if he just said that, he just said that he's the least of all the apostles, he's untimely born, he wasn't born in a great manner. But he says, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. This is a transformed life. The grace of God had 
radically changed Paul from a persecutor of the church. One who dragged Christians out and beat them and watched over their executions and burnt down their houses and burnt down churches. And then, boom, the grace of God comes, transform life, resurrection power flowing through his veins. The power and the reality and the truth of Jesus Christ's resurrection is evidenced by the grace of God transforming the hearts of his people. This is a beautiful thing. First Peter Chapter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has Come. The new has come because the Lord Jesus, who said of himself in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life has come. That's why the new things can pass away, because he came. He came in great power. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 to 6 says that the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, was declared as such with power by the resurrection, it says. Look down to verse 55 of 1 Corinthians 15. Here is Paul, the one who had just written earlier that Christ was raised again according to the Scriptures. Here he is quoting those exact Scriptures here in verse 55, he's quoting Hosea again. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. New life, transformed life comes from Christ. We live it out. And then you look at verse 58, the final chapter, sorry, the final verse of the chapter. Therefore, my beloved brethren, in light of the fact that the church has testified to the power of the gospel and the resurrection, and in light of the fact that the scriptures that you have in your hands testify to the power of the gospel and the resurrection, in light of the fact that the eyewitnesses testify to the validity and truth of a resurrected Christ, and in light of the fact that the grace of God has come and transformed your life, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Do you notice that? Very first verse of chapter 15 says, if you've not believed in vain, final verse of chapter 15 says, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. There's no, there's nothing vain about giving your life 
in steadfast, immovable, abounding work. When you are, by grace, one who has had the gospel preached to you, you have received it by faith, you stand upon it, you stand upon the very thing that saved you, and then you devote your life out of gratitude for the one who died for you and who rose again. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 says that Jesus was raised for our justification. If Jesus simply just stayed in the grave, then he is one who is accursed of God. If Jesus just stays in the grave, he is one who says, yes, I obeyed everything, I am going to suffer, and, then he, and it just all lies. But he was raised, and the fact that he was raised means that he is vindicated as the holy, righteous Son of God, and we, believing in him, are united to him, and we are given resurrection, power, and life through our veins. These are beautiful truths for a beautiful day. And I can think of no greater way to come and worship our God and regroup together as a family on Resurrection Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together. We thank you for the joy it is to be born again. Lord, thank you for sending your beloved son. Lord, may you take these words to the Corinthian church in their context and apply them to us and bless them to us. We see great glory in your word. We see the glory of your beloved son in your word. And we want to look and gaze into his glory that we would all grow in areas where we need to grow. Give us a sense of deep humility. Give us a grace to be able to love one another. Lord, if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Our faith is also in vain. Worse than that, we're found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He didn't raise. But the reality is, is that you did raise him. We've hoped for Christ in this age, but not just in this age, but in the age to come. Father, in Adam all die, but in Christ all are made alive, and we've been made alive by your grace. And we want to give testimony to the power of your resurrection, the power of your gospel by... Longing for your return. Lord, we know from another of your servant Paul's letters that when we are looking for and longing for that blessed appearance of your son, we're moved to live as we ought. And through these challenging days, we need to do that. And so grant us great grace and bless us as a church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.